0: Thank you for singing so well. Randy didn't know what I was talking about this morning when he planned those songs. And we always see the Lord lead because so much of what we sang about fits in with our message of the morning. And I was a little bit insecure about this text just because it's, again, kind of an obscure text. But uh, after singing about uh, letting our light shine and about the glory of God and my soul must sing, uh, it all fits. So let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Daniel. The Book of Daniel. We're going to focus most of our time this morning just on one verse in chapter twelve. Now, when you hear the name Daniel, uh, your mind probably, as a believer, immediately develops an impression of who that was and thinks about some of the experiences that Daniel had um, and the and the spiritual impact that he made on other people. And those concepts that we have of Daniel are based on, in many ways, what we learned as kids. Uh, about Daniel and and, uh, the lion's den and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and all those different stories that we know out of the book of Daniel, which is actually a very, very rich book on its own uh, apart from those stories. Daniel, I I was impressed this week, was one of those rare people in Scripture that never really failed the Lord. He wasn't like David who had the sin with Bathsheba or um, Peter who denied Christ or You look at everybody in Scripture. This makes us feel better as we study Scripture. Every great person in Scripture had some kind of a flaw some time when they failed the Lord in some way, and that just reminds us of the grace and mercy of God. But Daniel, when you look at his life, we really don't see any times where he failed and where he let the Lord down. And that's interesting because when you talk about the great men and women of faith, his name's really not the first one that pops into our minds, is it? He's listed here in the minor prophets. There are uh, major prophets in the Old Testament, and there are minor prophets. That's how it's laid out, and he's in the minor prophet section. And in a sense, that's kind of I think, and I'm just speculating this morning based on my own experience, that's kind of the attention that he gets. His attention is kind of minor. We remember, oh yeah, Daniel and the lions, and I remember that learning that when I was six, but when we talk about the great men and women of the Old Testament, Daniel's probably not one of the first ones we list. And it's interesting because in Hebrews chapter 11, which is the great faith chapter, his name is never mentioned in Hebrews 11. There's just an allusion to him about uh, men who stopped the mouths of lions referring to Daniel. Now, that doesn't mean he's not important, and it doesn't mean that the Lord didn't use him in a powerful way and didn't think highly of him. It just means that he's one of the more unsung heroes of the faith, one of the ones whose faithfulness was profound, and yet we don't think about that often. Now, here in chapter 12 of the book of Daniel, the Daniel who's writing is near the end of his life, and he is old and wise at this point. He's not the same one who stood before uh, Nebuchadnezzar and said, I don't want to eat of the food of Babylon when they were trying to indoctrinate him. He said, I, I want to have a contest where I just eat what I'm supposed to eat for my faith, and we'll see who comes out better. And he's not the Daniel who interprets dreams for Nebuchadnezzar and sees visions, and he's not the Daniel who um, protect, whose friends were protected in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when the, when the big idol went up to Nebuchadnezzar and they refused to bow down. This Daniel is older. He's experienced. And his experience has been greater and more profound and more close to the Lord than any other person living on the face of the earth at that time. And nobody could have foreseen that other than the Lord. When he was taken away as a teenager, scholars speculate that he was less than 20 years old when he was taken to Babylon. Nobody could have have understood, even himself, that, that the one who was taken into captivity would have become the most important man in the nation. He was more powerful and more influential and probably more respected than anybody in Babylon. And his character and his integrity was matchless. Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Cyrus and Darius who were the four kings while David was in Babylon. None of them came close. None of them had the respect of the people the way Daniel did. But it wasn't because he was outgoing and gregarious. And it wasn't because he was tactical and cunning and figured out how to work his way up the ladder. And it wasn't because he had great leadership ability. None of that's recorded in the Bible. There's nowhere it says that Daniel was a tactical manipulator who figured out how to work the system and gotten people's good graces and kind of worked the way he was going to work never says that. All it tells us is that his heart was inclined to the Lord and he sought the Lord and he honored the Lord in whatever he did. Now, the conditions under which he did that were more difficult than we can possibly imagine. Sometimes we overstate the times we live in a little bit. We get even a little bit overdramatic about the state of the world. And we say, well, right now, 2011, it's so hard to minister and people are indifferent and, and the church isn't doing what it needs to do and the challenge is greater than ever before. And while some of those things are true, I think the enemy works to manipulate us and discourage us and say, well, you're just not making any headway and you're in the minority and look at the rise of Islam and look at how the world just doesn't care and look how the Bible's devalued and, and all those things and the generation's too far gone, and and you just, you can't make any headway. So evangelism and outreach should be a smaller priority. Or maybe that we should just adapt the gospel so we'll be more popular and people will pay attention, and and, and if we don't quite stay true to the word, but we finesse it a little bit, that that people will will show up. You know, I was impressed as I was watching Franklin Graham being interviewed for the Rock Lakes Festival, which took place last night and takes place this afternoon. If you're not going to family camp, go up to Veterans Park 4 to 7, 4 to 6 today and be part of that. What an experience that will be. But I was watching him being interviewed on the news. And they said, why do you care so much about the younger generation? He said, because my generation failed to follow the Lord. And he said, what I want to tell this generation is, is that Jesus Christ loves you. And I'm sitting there watching TV going, you go, Franklin. Good for you for naming the name of Christ. There are a lot of pastors that wouldn't do that. There are a lot of pastors that would dance around that and not say Jesus Christ is the way. And the devil works on us and he causes us to think that it will be just easier if we will just capitulate. The problem with that is the men and women of the Lord in the Bible never accommodated the message simply to make it easy or because people would reject them. And Daniel's a perfect example of that. Because when we do that with the word, when we do that with the gospel, it shows an inherent lack of trust in the power of the gospel. And it shows an inherent lack of trust in the work of the Holy Spirit to change people's lives. So we see people throughout Scripture standing there for their for their convictions, even though the times that they lived in, let's say this now, were far worse than the time we live in. At least people are responsive. At least you came this morning. At least people are studying the word of God. At least the word can still be declared in a public park in Milwaukee. At least Franklin can go on TV and say the name of Jesus Christ. There are many countries this morning where you can't do that. And there were situations in scripture where people could not do that without fear of being killed. Think about the conditions of some of them that they faced. Daniel, a young foreign slave in a nation that hated Jews, looked down on, ridiculed. He didn't know the language. There was worship of false gods everywhere. The king himself thought himself a god. But Daniel stood for the Lord, and he never wavered, and God blessed him. Then you have Joseph, who was in a similar situation, plus he had the pain of being betrayed by those who were closest to him, and he had temptation at his fingertips, and nobody would have known, and he could have acted upon it, and then he had the irritation after he was falsely accused of going into jail and helping somebody, and then the person forgot about him, and he continued to stay in jail while the other person flourished. He had all that going in, but he stayed firm in his convictions, and God blessed him and used him to save people and even to restore his brothers. Then we've got Esther, who had to hide her nationality from King Azur Harris. And then he, she took the risk of exposing Haman's plot and standing up for Mordecai, knowing that if she failed, both of them were going to hang. And yet God honored her faithfulness in doing what's right and blessed her and used her in a powerful way. You've got Elijah, who's ministering at a time when the whole nation is dark spiritually. The king and queen are idol worshipers, and they're threatening his life, and there's nobody to encourage him. There's nobody to serve alongside him, and yet he stays faithful and calls people to repent, and the nation turns. And you've got John the Baptist, living in the wilderness, literally eating bugs, Many people thought he was crazy. He was a wild man wearing fur and his hair was long and he ate honey and bugs. If you ever eaten honey and bugs together? That's not a good combination because the bugs stick to your face, right? How many know that's no? That's all right. John the Baptist was not dressed like this walking around going, we need to repent. He was a crazy, and I mean that in the right way from people's perception, A wild wilderness man whose hair was not cut, walking around in skins and dressed wildly and and eating bugs and saying, you need to come back to the Lord because the way of the Lord is coming and I'm preparing you for it. And yet when Jesus came, his attention all faded and his disciples started to follow Jesus and he was put in jail and beheaded but he stayed faithful to the Lord till the end. Each person's ministry, and that doesn't even mention the apostles or Paul or Silas or Timothy or Epaphras or Barnabas, each of those ministries happened under unbelievably challenging and dangerous times, far worse than we expected and far worse than we experienced. And yet when we say those names, centuries later, Think about what we, what we know about them, the strength of their faithfulness, the effectiveness of their impact. It's overwhelming. But how many know there had to be times when they felt insecure, and when they felt alone, and when they felt discouraged, and they felt ineffective? Don't you think there were days when Joseph was sitting in the jail cell or Esther was wondering what Asia Harris would do where John the Baptist was wandering around the wilderness knowing that people, some people were laughing at him. Don't you think there were days where they thought it would be so much easier to just give in? It'd be so much easier not to be outwardly controversial. There were days and weeks, I would imagine, where they were tempted to feel that the other side had it a lot better and they should just stop making waves. You know, all of us live with some measure of insecurity. How many have dealt with insecurity this week? Let me see your hand. If you don't raise your hand, you're not telling the truth. You were insecure about raising your hand, so there, you did it. I better see that. Yeah, I was insecure this week many times. I'm insecure this morning. We all deal with that, and yet it goes beyond just wondering how we fit in and what people think of us personally. It's even more of an issue, isn't it, when we feel it from a spiritual standpoint. When we're defending the Lord and standing for the Lord, as we talked about last week, and influencing others for Him, and then there's a definite appeal to feel sorry for ourselves an annoyance that some people reject God and that some people have softened the message, but they seem to thrive. And then we're standing for the Lord. We feel kind of lonely and insecure and we're wondering what to do. And part of that comes from our natural pride. Part of that comes from wanting to be liked and be accepted and to be known and seen and, and, and viewed as wonderful there's this cultural underpinning of self-promotion that constantly hits us. So we see, as the Bible says, the wicked thriving, and we feel bitter and jealous and frustrated and hurt and dissatisfied, and our, our rival, so to speak, and this is how our proud mind thinks, our rival gets the attention, but, but we're standing for the Lord, and nobody's anything. And we've got to get those thoughts out of our head. We've got to stop thinking about ourselves that much because there's the delusion to that thinking. Think about all the people this morning that are well-known and are wealthy and are popular and have power. Think about the scrutiny that they're under and how when they fall just for a moment, their whole life falls apart and, and the news stations and the paparazzi starts to follow them around and every move's dissected and they're talked about on late night TV and they're ridiculed. Listen, Christians aren't the only ones that, that get criticized. Everybody gets criticized. you don't believe that look at Tiger Woods in the last two years. At the top, at the pinnacle, as wealthy as you can get, married, respected, endorsements like crazy, playing the best golf he could play. And now he's nothing because of pride. And we say, well, we're so critical people don't respect us. Listen, we have it easy at this point. Think about Joseph and Esther and Daniel. People who really stood in the gap. As believers, we're told not to crave those things. We're not to crave the things of the world. We're supposed to reject them. And the greatest impact we'll ever have and the most influence we'll ever have is when we live completely for the Lord. The Bible says in Psalm 37.1, don't worry, don't fret, don't don't get frustrated and envious because of evildoers, because they're going to wither like the grass. And that's completely confirmed in history. Not one of us this morning can name the people who are more popular and socially accepted than Joseph or John the Baptist. Not one of us. No one can name the names of the rich people in Babylon and Ethiopia who were around Daniel and Esther. Even Ahab and Jezebel and Nebuchadnezzar. History knows them, but they're forgotten footnotes. Nothing came of their lives. But the name of those who have faithfully served the Lord are like spotlights in the darkness. And centuries later, we're standing here saying, look at their lives. How do we know that's true? Well, let's finally get to our passage. That was a longer introduction than normal. That was half the message, actually. Look at chapter 12. And let's get some context here real quick. In chapter 10, just glance at it, Daniel has a vision that scares him a lot. And in chapter 11, the Lord explains it to him as a sign of what's to come and how it works around Israel. There's going to be future war. There's going to be conflict. And the Jews will be directly in the center of it. And the picture that he gives Daniel through chapter 11 lasts all the way into the end times. And as Daniel sees this and hears it explained, he's very disconcerted And he's disturbed in his spirit. But the Lord gives him a word of encouragement here that's the basis for our study. Let's start chapter 12 Verse 3 is our key verse, but let's read verses 1 to 4. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince, the great angel who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Now you say, that is a really strange passage for an August morning, and you are very right. Thus, my insecurity. Daniel 12, why would we study that this morning? It's definitely directed at the nation of Israel. It talks about how they will be defended and delivered by the Lord who has not given up on them, and he will carry out his plan to bless them. But while this is spoken about Israel in the future, there's an important thought there in verse 3 that stands out and it should not only encourage us and prompt us to persevere and be zealous in our commitment, but it also needs to remind us again. And I know I need this reminder daily. And I think you do too, that the Lord helps and rewards those who live for him. Somebody say amen besides Sue. The Lord helps and rewards those who live for him. Now, there are two main thoughts we want to take apart. We want to spend a little bit more time on the first and the second. The first thought at the start of verse 3 is, those who have insight, I'll explain that in a minute, will shine as brightly as the glory of heaven. The second thought is that those who lead people to the Lord will shine like stars forever. And let's deal with the first. Those who have insight will shine as brightly as the glory of heaven. Now, those of you who are old enough to have this perspective, have you noticed how wisdom, think about that word, how wisdom has become devalued now that we have the plethora, plethora of information on the internet? Couple of clicks and you can find anything from the sleeping habits of an Aardvark to how Saturn has. Gas rings. I mean, I'm just making it up now. You can find anything. A couple of clicks, Google, Yahoo, whatever the case may be, you just find it. And what's happened with that, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, I'm not being critical, I'm just talking about how things have changed. Now, true research and true reading are becoming a thing of the past. Because anybody can find any fact that they want with no expertise required. I took two years of Greek in college, and I can hardly say that I mastered it in any way. In fact, part of my insecurity in college was that everybody knew more than I did. And I look at that, and now there are websites that you click once or twice. You can get every Hebrew or Greek word in context. You get the tense and the voice and the cross-references. You just point and click. No more walking around with no cards on the key ring like we used to in college trying to memorize all the Greek words. That's a wonderful thing for those of us who were C students in college. Everybody raise your hand if you were a C student in college. Yeah. Thank you. I, we connect now, you and I. We're friends. Those of you that are A students, I have no relationship with you. I don't understand you at all. Now, those of us who were C students go, man, that's awesome. I didn't have to memorize all those Greek words in college because I didn't. So now I could just click and I get the wealth of wisdom that's collected on the Internet. But the net effect is that wisdom, not knowledge, wisdom, has now become a very underrated quality. Now let me illustrate this point. I was able, in the comfort of my chair, to click twice and get the definition of wisdom. Wisdom, by definition, is the knowledge of what is true or right coupled with just judgment as to action. It's also discernment or insight. Now, we know that truth has become almost completely subjective in our culture. And we know that what is right is now more defined by our feeling and our opinion than by what is true. So arriving at a just judgment with discernment becomes even more challenging. And since the word of God has been marginalized and devalued even by Christians, the Bible now, this book that we hold in our hands, and aren't you glad you have it this morning, this book now has been devalued. It's been lessened. It's been diminished. It it now no longer serves as the truth for the majority of the people in the world. And then when you add the diminished priority on prayer and the misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit and the general avoidance of Christians to not talk about the Holy Spirit, it means that not only is wisdom underrated, but spiritual wisdom is now more rare and more elusive than ever. Now, just let that sink in for a minute because that's a lot of information knowing that the Holy Spirit is writing to Daniel about a future that we haven't even experienced yet, let alone Daniel, how do we understand this? What does the Spirit mean when he says in verse 3, those who have insight will shine brightly? And That word insight has a very rich meaning in the Hebrew language. It means to wisely understand, to have insight and to act prudently, and wisely about it. In other words, what he's talking about in verse 3 is to have a true spiritual perception and an intellectual understanding of what is going on and even more important, why it's going on. And in response to that, to act and live in a way that is righteous and honoring to the Lord and to exert influence on the spiritual lives of others because we're living in the right way. Let me rephrase it. It's getting what's going on and realizing we have to live a certain way so people will come to Christ. Don't just look at the news and say, wow, it's horrible what's happening in the world and the stock market's dropping and the country's in recession and the world's in recession and people are dying in Somalia and there's war in Iraq, but you know what? I've got to worry about what I'm going to have for dinner. It's looking that and saying, oh, Lord, what is going on? I understand. This is the sign that the times are like the train tracks going toward the horizon. They're coming to a close. Even so, come quickly, Lord, because it's narrowing in. My dad tells me, yesterday, my iPhone. He said, I called you on my iPhone. And a picture of you popped up. He said, I don't have a picture program. He said, now with the iPhone, it can search anything on the internet related to you and give you all that information. When you were born, who your friends are on Facebook, your picture, it just searches everything. Listen, if you don't think the mark of the beast will be easy once we're gone, you're fooling yourself. They're saying in two years, you won't need a wallet. You just use your phone for everything. Well, how soon will it be with Bluetooth? until that's easy to just put in your hand. I'm not trying to scare you. That's what verse 3 says. Knowing that insight, how then do we live? How do we influence other people for Jesus Christ? How do we have wisdom so we can say, hey, this is going on. Hey, world, come on now. You don't get it. We do. That's not pride. That's spiritual insight. Here's what the word says. Here's your need. I've been there. I knew what it was like to be away from the Lord. Some of you have profound testimonies. We heard them last Sunday at the baptism. Uh, Here's what it used to be like in my life. And then the Lord got a hold of me and I read scripture and I saw Christ died for my sins and rose again. And now I get it. And you just can't imagine how different my life is. Now look around. The world's collapsing. The economies are fractured. The dollar's worth nothing. The world is in trouble. And it's just waiting for somebody to come along and say, I have the answer. And when that person comes along, especially because the spiritual influence of Christians will be gone, the world will say, finally. It is abundantly clear from this passage, look back at the text, that to have this kind of wisdom, it only comes from the Holy Spirit. The natural man sees darkly. We see through an opaque glass a filter of self that obscures the understanding of truth. But when the Holy Spirit indwells us and fills us and transforms our mind, and renews us, truth then becomes clear and things become obvious, and our insight is sharpened. Listen, if you've been saved 15, 20 years and your understanding is not sharpened, you are not spending enough time in the Word of God, and you are not spending enough time in prayerless in the Holy Spirit. I'm not being critical. I've been there. I'm still there some days. Been saved 37 years. You would think I would get everything with utter clarity, with HD spirituality. And yet sometimes we're like, what's the Lord doing? Why oh, I can't get it? And God says, really? You should have verse 3. You should have insight, you should have understanding. This is how Daniel knew that after 10 days, he would be more healthy than everybody else. It's how he knew that the dreams that the king was having were to be interpreted a certain way and that all the kings around him would fail. It's how he knew as they dropped him into the pit and the hungry lions were going, hey, fresh meat, if lions could talk. That Daniel said, Not concerned. It's how Daniel knew what was going to happen in the end times, that Messiah would come, and one day there would be a false Messiah, and the world would be judged. What a contrast to all the men and women who have exalted themselves. Alexander the Great, who conquered the world and died of boredom. Napoleon, who thought he was such a great general, and yet at the end of his life was exiled to Elba and died alone, Hitler, who thought as the Fuhrer he could take over the world and exterminated six million Jews, died putting a gun to his head in a bunker in the Alps as the Allies closed in on him. All of those men are footnotes. Daniel was hated, plotted against, seen as too righteous, accused, and sentenced to die. And yet today, his name, that one name, stands firm, and he is honored as someone who is faithful to the Lord. Three kings who were completely carnal, he influenced them and talked about the power of God and turned their hearts away from idols. And that affirms that the second part, look at it, of verse 3 is true. Wisdom and understanding are proven by living for the Lord and for eternity. And then, second, by leading others to righteousness. We just did a series on spiritual fruit. Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins soul." If our life bears the unmistakable presence of the Lord and our words are bold and confident and our actions are strong living example of living for Christ, then people will come to Christ because of us. It has to happen. And verse 3 says, For all eternity, God will honor them all eternity our lives will shine. Now here's what we need to understand as we draw to a close. Turn over a couple pages to Matthew chapter 5 and let's conclude. Because the Lord is calling us here to live in a very distinct and outward and obvious way. And a very familiar passage in the Sermon on the Mount here in chapter 5 of Matthew, starting in verse 14, there are three Verses that we know well that echo what Daniel was told a thousand years before he was told that our responsibility as children of God is to be a strong light in a dark world. And that when we follow that calling, there is tremendous impact on the lives of others. Read what Christ says. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light, this is a command, not a suggestion, let your light shine before men in such a way that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now the Spirit told Daniel the same thing a thousand years before. And his understanding and our understanding of that principle is that we will shine, verse 16, like the brightest parts of heaven when we stand for the Lord. Now, Jesus came to be that kind of light. He came to be the light of the world. And then he left and he sent his own spirit and he said, I will now empower you so that your light can shine. And it cannot be hidden because that doesn't make sense. I remember reading this verse when I was in Israel for the first time and we were out near the Sea of Galilee. The sea of Galilee is very beautiful. It's about eight or nine miles long, if I remember correctly, about a mile wide. You can see the whole thing. And the hills, the Golan Heights surround it, the hills of Judea surround it. And the guide who was with us says, now think about Matthew chapter 5. A city set on a hill. He said, at night, you will see the lights around, and there aren't many because it's still Israel, but he said, you'll see the lights come up and you'll know where the cities are. A light on a hill, even in the Sea of Galilee during Jesus' time, if somebody had had a lantern up on top of the hill, you would have been able to see it from miles away. Don't hide it. Look at the verse. Don't put the light under a basket and expect that you'll illuminate the surroundings. That's what we do when we live marginally morally, where we try to balance between Christ and the world and and hope we're doing a good thing. We hesitate to declare the name of the Lord or to share about the goodness of the Lord or talk about the transforming power of the gospel. We hide that light, but Jesus said, You are my witnesses. Go and tell. Go share the good news. Tell everybody who's in spiritual darkness, who's dying, who's got one foot in the fire, as Jude 24 says, go and tell them that I can redeem them. And live in such a way that no one will question for even a second. Think about this this week. That no one will question for even a second what you believe and what your conviction is. Don't give them a shred of a doubt. Don't allow them to wonder, even for a moment, is that guy real? Is that woman real? They go to that church in that hotel. Do they really believe what they believe? I see them with their Bible and I see them in their nice clothes going to church while I'm doing my yard on Sunday morning. Are, Are they real? Don't give an opportunity for them to doubt that you stand for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Influence others. Even if you're standing alone, you may feel insecure and incapable and ineffective, and it may seem like people around you aren't really sold out. You're standing alone and, oh, I don't like this anymore. Listen, don't be fooled by that, and don't be discouraged. Live by the understanding of what God's called you to, and your light will shine forever. When Daniel got to Babylon, He could not have imagined that he would have as much influence as he did. But listen, we're done. It started with being faithful and not compromising. And as his influence grew, he got more confident and more bold. And then his friends were in a dicey situation. And they could look at Daniel and say, you know what? Daniel stood up to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, we're not bound before your idol. Nebuchadnezzar, well, there's a fiery furnace. So I'm going to throw you in. We don't care. We're not doing it. We're standing for the Lord. And when they got thrown in, they weren't singed. They didn't smell of smoke. And there is Jesus, the incarnate Jesus, standing with them in the middle of that fire And they're not even touched. You know who influenced them for that? It was Daniel. And listen, this is not something we have to produce. Look back at the verse one more time, then we'll pray. Verse 16. He doesn't say, Oh, Christian, now this week, make that light shine. You don't have to produce this. He says, Let it shine. Be willing. Extend yourself. Make it a matter of the will. And the impetus is Jesus Christ who came to be the light. D.L. Moody once told an account of a man he heard about in Minnesota who was caught in a horrible storm. He said, That state is cursed with storms which come sweeping down so suddenly in the wintertime that escape is difficult. The snow will fall and the wind will beat it into the face of the traveler so he can't see two feet ahead. Many a man has been lost in the prairies when he got caught in one of those storms. This man was caught. He was almost on the point of giving up when he saw a little light in a log house. He managed to get there and found a shelter from the fury of the tempest. He is now a wealthy man, and as soon as he was able, he bought the farm and built a beautiful house on the spot where the log building stood. On top of a tower, he put a revolving light, and every night when there comes a storm, he lights it up in hope that it may be the means of saving someone else. Moody then goes on to write, That's true gratitude. And this is what God wants us to show. If he's rescued us and brought us up out of the horrible pit, let us always be looking to see if there's not someone else whom we can help to save. Let me ask you a question. Is your heart burning with the same gratitude you had on the day Christ saved you? Are you driven each morning to say, Lord, I want others to see the light that saved me. I I want other people to see that. And Lord, it's hard for me. And I'm insecure. And I don't always know how to share that. and, And I don't know enough scripture. But even our lives can show people or is your light kind of flickering and dull, like those horrible new light bulbs they're making us buy that don't give off any light and any heat whatsoever? What a what a picture of Christianity! You just kind of sit there. You never walk in a room and go, "Oh, it's bright! Oh, wonderful! Look at this! This room's bright." Here you go, Sticking light bulbs. Is that what your walk looks like this morning? Listen, the simple question before us is, is our light really shining before men so they see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven? You see, when the Lord elevates the underrated, he does it for his glory and to show his power. Joseph, who saved the people to show God's provision and God's faithfulness, Elijah, who called down fire so that people would repent and return to God. John the Baptist, who preached repentance and said, there's one coming after me. Oh, he's the Messiah. You better listen to him. What are you and I doing to let our light shine? Is it hidden under the basket of insecurity and fear and hesitation? Well, I'm telling you this morning, it's time for all of us to uncover it. So much more we can be doing to be visible. And we need to ask the Lord this morning to give us confidence and courage and conviction to do that. Let's bow together. Lord, we ask you this morning. Our hearts are stirred. We hear what you're saying. Let your light shine. Not to draw attention to yourself. Not to self-promote. Just to draw attention to me so people would see what I've done in your life, so people would see that I'm glorified as God. Lord, the challenges that face us this week are profound, but they're not extreme. And all around us there will be people that need to know about your mercy and need to know about your love and need to know that there's hope and redemption through Christ. So Lord, through our words and our actions this week, May we be bold. May we be spotlights that shine in that darkness. And Lord, when the enemy comes and we know he will, he is right now. When he comes to bring fear and anxiety and insecurity and hesitation, Lord, defeat him. Just defeat him. So that we would be bold and confident. What a joy, Lord, to know you. What a joy to be saved by you. Now we ask you to work in our hearts and our lives. Lord, give my brothers and sisters, give me great boldness this week. May we walk out of here ready to go serve and to go stand for you. We pray this in Jesus' name.